If you enjoy our podcast, please consider supporting Glass Tire. All of the money we raise, since we are a nonprofit, goes right back into our coverage of Texas's art and artists. Our coverage is supported thanks to readers and listeners like you. If you would like to contribute, you can do so at glasstire.com forward slash donate. Thanks so much and enjoy today's show. Hello and welcome to Art Dirt. This is a podcast where we at Glass Tire talk about topical art topics. I am Brandon Zek. Hello, I am Leslie Moody Castro. Leslie's our guest editor and she's joining us on Art Dirt today to talk about the commercialization of art or of artists' work or however you want to think about it. So this conversation is being prompted by uh, the recent Yayoi Kusama Louis Vuitton collab, which if you haven't seen anything about it yet, um, first of all, I'm very surprised for you. And second of all, you need to just read something about it because there has been a huge marketing push. It's been on ads everywhere. It's been on digital ads everywhere. Um, it's been in person at Louis Vuitton stores to a crazy extent. Um, But we're going to talk about this collaboration and kind of use it as a way to talk about larger commercialization of art as a whole. So we're not really going to be talking about like art fairs or the commodification of art in the sense of like painting selling for $50 million. We're going to be talking about art that is turned into commercial products that are quote unquote accessible to consumers in whatever way that means. Um... So, Leslie, do you want to jump in with the Kusama collaboration? Do you want to give a background or should I do it? I think that, well, we can both touch on a little bit. I mean, this is a really big topic, right? Um, So the Kusama collaboration with Louis Vuitton has been ongoing for quite some time. And um, it's, you know, it's really been relegated to sort of the fashion house and like fashion brand and and. I guess fashion language until really recently with the, the these crazy sculptures, which you should talk about, Brandon. So, uh, yeah, it has a little bit of a background also. So Louis Vuitton collaborated with Kusama back in 2012, um, where the stores were kind of also transformed into pseudo installations. There were like large sculptures, quote unquote sculptures of Kusama objects. Apparently there were lifelike mannequins of the artist. Um, This collaboration, yeah, it's a little terrifying, but this collaboration takes it one step farther and one step farther into the uncanny valley of terrifying. Um, This collaboration includes in some of the like signature Louis Vuitton store windows, like in Paris, Tokyo, New York. It includes animatronic Kusama painting dots on the windows of these stores. Um, maybe, maybe before I go into that, I just need to talk about really quick about the Louis Vuitton collection. You know, it's kind of what exactly you would expect from a Kusama Louis Vuitton collab. There are handbags. There are leather trunks. There are um, uh, there are 
jogging suits, there are pajamas, there are coats that have polka dot linings, that have polka dot silk screened on them, that have, you know, it's it's polka dots and various other Kusama emblems, symbols. And traditionally, for the brands, they've been on a white background. And so the Kusama polka dots have been like the color added in, the sort of pops that have been designed. Um, there's also been shoes, I think. It's just like every, like raincoats, umbrellas, all these things. It's like 400 different products. Uh, and we're not exaggerating. That actually, I believe, is the number of different products that are a part of this line. So it's really been a big deal. There was a quote from um, a representative from Louis Vuitton talking about how it would be a significant impact of their, or a significant portion of their quarter one sales. I believe that was in the Wall Street Journal. So it's... You know, Louis Vuitton knows what they're doing. They sell luxury goods, um, and their brand is doing that in a way that makes you want to buy more of them besides the ones you already have. So part of that is a big marketing push whenever something like this comes out. Mm -hmm. And I also think that in some ways they maybe are thinking of trying to expand their brand and expand their audience by doing this, like perhaps kind of playing on this sort of long history of a little bit of a rift between like fashion, commercial fashion and the art world, which is something we haven't really touched on in our conversations leading up to this podcast. But it's it's a way of kind of bridging these things together in terms of like high end design and high end um, fashion for the art world. It's like, it's a really interesting conversation on how to on how to open an audience as well, especially for marketing. Yeah, like it's I mean, if anything, Leslie, what do you think it's elevating? Are the two, are, are, are Kusama and Louis Vuitton elevating each other together? Is Kusama's brand elevating Louis Vuitton's brand? Is Louis Vuitton's brand elevating Kusama's brand? Because I think back in 2012, a lot of people saw it as Louis Vuitton was collaborating with Kusama and raised the profile of Kusama, which in the last 10 years... You know, that may have been part of the case. Like Kusama, you know, Kusama is a wonderful artist in and of her own right, but maybe if she hadn't gotten as much exposure, maybe that rise wouldn't have been so steep. Um, but at this point, Kusama's a brand unto herself. And she already, I mean, she already also has commercial objects featuring designs of her art. So who is, like, who's benefiting here or is there one party i i mean i don't think it is one party i i think that back in the day when they first started doing this collaboration it was it was more of louis vuitton trying to reach a new audience um there's also the murakami collection that was done by louis vuitton and so i think that it was a way of of sort of branching out into this different field of creativity um, to sort of bring in more more buyers, essentially, um, and to sort of elevate their brand into something that was also a little bit more quirky, um, a little bit out of the box for them, because at the time, Louis Vuitton was definitely formulaic. Um, so this for Louis Vuitton as a brand and as a fashion house was definitely thinking outside of the box. Um, at this point, I don't know if we need animatronic Kusamas in our lives. Like, it's... <laughs> It just seems very weird and very creepy. And we've talked about this, Brandon. It reminds me a lot of like the the images and the marketing that we see with the Frida Kahlo stuff. 
Um, the, the difference, obviously, is that Frida Kahlo's image is used by a corporation, her family corporation, which was built off of her image, and she is no longer alive, as we all know, to control that image. Um, and so I guess my question for for this collaboration that's happening right now is why, what was the, why did, why, why was that, why was it felt that we needed to take it a step further to actually include like the body of Kusama or like Kusama herself as an artist to be like commercialized in this way? It's, it's a really, it's a very strange thing. Yeah. Cause okay. For context for you listener, Kusama at the time of, right now is 93 she's been voluntarily voluntarily living in a mental health hospital since 1990 uh, sorry since 1977 um there's there's a big question and i i haven't really seen a ton of articles about this i believe the art newspaper wrote one um but kind of larger publications or the larger discourse i haven't seen it i've seen it in like memes and in tweets and in the kind of sub art discourse but the larger question is does kusama know what's happening with this collaboration like how exploitative is this collaboration actually is it louis vuitton going to her studio assistants and being like hey we can do this and her studio assistants saying yeah that'll make us some money or is kusama actually on board um in the wall street journal i believe also i read that Apparently in like 2021, they were looking for, you know, designs coming out of the pandemic and they were looking for something happy and bright and they thought of Kusama and their past collaborations and they went and they had meetings with the studio and with her and all of that. But I don't know. I still haven't seen, um, I I, I forget who uh, I think tweeted this, so forgive me, but someone was like, where are the words I am excited out of Kusama's mouth? Like, where is the quote from Kusama about this collaboration? There was a photo that went up not too long ago of her, I believe it was in Tokyo, in front of one of her animatronic uh, robots in the store window, which, I mean, to me, that's not proof that she approves. That's just a wild image. Um, right. Right. <laughs> Right. It's that's a that's a publicity op. Yeah. Well, and I could see that as essentially them trying to be like, look, she knows it's happening. She's sitting in front of the robot like she knows this is fine. Um, the Wall Street Journal, you know, for posterity, the Wall Street Journal did report that the fashion house worked closely with the artist and her studio to make it happen. But I don't know. Just because you're working closely doesn't mean that someone actually knows what's happening. Again, she's 93. She's been living in a mental health facility. Um, but I, th- I think we don't necessarily know what that means or we don't know her full capacities in that regard. Right. And that makes it very, very, I mean, it's just, it's all very opaque, it seems. Um, and it's, it's almost like, did we need to take that next step? Um, because we're talking about Kusama as a brand, right? At her art as a brand. And this isn't, it's not, it's not just like a sculpture of a classical object or, I mean, it's, it's a person who is in a facility that I don't even, I think she was in a wheelchair in that photo. Like she's not, she's not capable of walking anymore, at least not far that I know of. And so it seems like one step a little bit too far. And, and yeah, I wonder 
I wonder about the issue of control. We have we have so many examples of artists doing this and selling their work, commercializing their work in various capacities. And I think the biggest for me the the biggest issue is are are these artists actually controlling their image and does this image reflect what their ethics are as an artist as well? And that's kind of where my argument with with, with sorry with um, Frida Kahlo comes in as well. We might be getting farther into artists thinking about that posthumously now because there is such a commercialization of image and people have realized kind of the full capacity of being able to monetize that in everything that it means. But I mean, when Frida Kahlo died, it's not necessarily like, I mean, granted, I don't know her estate documents, but where's the line of someone being a brand or someone being exploited after their death? versus something that's acceptable to do because there's not any metric one way or the other of what they actually wanted. And to further complicate that, I mean, today we now have social media, which everything is sensationalized, right? So it's like, of course, of course, the sensation of having Kusama as an animatronic being inside of these stores just sort of further sensationalizes this brand, this collaboration that this brand has created. Um, And in terms of in terms of the Frida Kahlo question, I don't know. I mean, the line there is really, really fuzzy. And the uh, the corporation has certainly um, exploited her image. Um, Frida Kahlo was very much anti-capitalism, anti-commercialization. Um, and unfortunately, so much of her history and ethics has sort of fallen under the umbrella of being the wife to one of the most outrageous um, muralists to ever exist in Mexico and, and then his brand. Right. And so, so much of her has sort of been erased in terms of becoming this image of a wife to someone who was very sensational and much of what's happening with her brand right now, I think she would have been embarrassed by, and I don't think she would have approved in any way. And and so it is a really interesting conversation because, yes, while she has become canonized in terms of, you know, being a female artist who was very famous in Mexico, who was sort of a very iconic person and figure as well as artist from Mexico, especially when we don't have that many very important, like, not, that's not true. We don't have that many famous female artists from Mexico, um, just for various reasons. It's a very much Easter country, but it's a whole other conversation. Um, but in terms of, of her brand, it's become this sort of art mecca site, which is really strange to me because I remember it just being a small home that you could just go sit and have coffee in. Um, and now there's lines out the door. And then her image is on everything. And the first thing that people say when they want to go to Mexico City is, oh, can we get to Frida Kahlo's house? I'm like, do you have to? <laughs> You know, it's just there was there is this superficiality to her image that exists now when she actually was a deep thinker and she actually was very much a revolutionary, much more so than her husband at times. Um, And so then that gets lost in conversation. It's kind of crazy how like universal that is around Frida Kahlo. Like I, I was in New York recently up there to see some shows and I was in a restaurant you know, a sit down restaurant. It was very nice. It wasn't even, it wasn't Mexican food. It wasn't Spanish food. It wasn't Latin American food. It was like Nordic food. And there was a print, a huge, huge faux Frida Kahlo, like 
photo print drawing i don't know exactly what it was on the wall and it was like this doesn't go with anything in this restaurant it doesn't go with the vibe it doesn't go with the food there's no reason for it to be here other than the restaurant trying to be like hey look we we know what's going on (laughs) you know like there was legitimately no it was the one of the weirdest elements of that experience um and I, i just yeah the ubiquity of it is something that once it starts to just be an accepted part of culture like once it starts to be something where it's just like oh yeah there's frida we know it's frida it's it gets a little it just gets a little weird it gets to be a little too much right well and i also think that there's another like link here with these two artists and with this situation happening they're they're female they're two female artists. Um, they're two female artists that are not white artists. And and so then there's a bigger question involved of, you know, who gets to control the image of a woman um, in a very male-driven world, in a very male-driven art world. And so we're seeing this sort of play out with Kusama, who's still alive. We don't know how much agency she has in it. Um, but then what happens later on down the road, right? Like Frida Kahlo and her estate is such an interesting example of that, of like how the image of a woman can be changed and manipulated and exploited post-death. Um, yeah, it's a very, I think that was the first thing that kind of caught my attention to it was like, oh, this is this is a woman. Of course, this is a woman that they're kind of starting this idea of sensationalizing her image. Because um, Frida Kahlo's image is everywhere. Like Frida Kahlo's image is on like Day of the Dead Katrina's, it's on bags, it's, on, it's everywhere. It's It's everywhere. What do you think it's going to look like as we get, I don't know, you know, 50 or 75 years into the future? Like, obviously, Kusama will have passed on by that point. But for these people who will have been dead for 150 years at that point, um, is is the is the separation from the time of them being alive better for the situation or is it? actually kind of worse because it's easier to get even farther away from their original ideas or ethos. That is such a good question. I, I wonder about this a lot, actually. Um, we live in a world where there is so much access to information, but that information is coming so quickly that I think, I think that I worry that younger, and I sound really old when I say this, but I worry that younger generations just don't put in as much research or time and investment of research. Um, it's just like things move so much faster now. Um, I, I don't know. Um, I mean, I think there's also a whole cultural situation happening with Latin America and Mexico in particular that has perpetuated the sort of, um, exploitation of Frida Kahlo's image. Uh, we'll see how that translates in other places in the future. Um, you know, it is sort of like the, the first cultural spot that anyone goes to when they want to see art. And that's big general definition art. Um, I wonder if people will actually care. Like by this point in time, you know, the conversation about post-war socialism will have been so far removed from people that will it matter that Trotsky's house is right around the corner and that she actually had an affair with him? Um, you know, it's it, will those politics actually make a difference um, in terms of how people associate her image or read her image as a revolutionary? Um, 
and those are shifting questions as well. So I, yeah, I don't know. I think that because, and like this, you know, it's a cycle, you know, we are the sensationalization of these animatronic Kusama collaboration, whatever's are, are such a big part of playing into like social media and selfie culture um, that it, it will, it's, it is moving us further away from the, the content of her work um, which is another interesting fact is like, we're not talking about the content of Kusama's work. We're talking about her biography, right? We're concerned about her image being exploited because she's, um, she's old and she's in a facility. Yeah. Well, or we're talking about literally the decorative aspects of the work. It's like the, well, and that also, you know, there's possibly a complication there because with the decorative aspects of Kusama's work, it's dots, which you know, if you get deeper into it, the dots are deeply personal for her and they have a lot of meaning for her. And But on the surface, they're dots versus the decorative aspects of Frida Kahlo's work are self-portraits that she made. So there's like, which on if you just go surface level, it's dots versus the literal image of Frida Kahlo's face. So they're like on the deeper level, they're both deeply connected and they both have a lot of meaning, but on the surface level, it almost seems, God, I don't want to like create an exploitative flow chart, uh, timeline to see which one is more so but like it almost seems like the Frida Kahlo one would be more so because it's like literally selling her image whereas Kusama it's only selling her art you know I I say that of course in jest and in full recognition of what I just said (laughs) (laughs) well and I mean it has gone a step further right like this is step one of beginning to sell the image of Kusama because it is her it's like she they've turned her into a body um and it is a body that she is not occupying in the sense that like she's in a wheelchair, you know, she's, she can't move around in those same ways. And so it's, it's exploiting, I think it's exploitative on various levels and, and it, you're right. Like it's, um, it's a really, the question, the bigger question is really murky territory um, because we don't have the full story and, and is it bad for artists to commercialize their image or images, their own work, or is it empowering? Well, see, I think this is the interesting direction to kind of take the last part of this conversation, because I feel like a ton of artists get flack for doing things like that. And I'm not necessarily talking about, I mean, like, Sure, people, I I don't really see people giving Kusama flack for the Louis Vuitton collab, but like, I feel like when you reach a certain level as an artist, it's almost kind of like a given that sure you'll do a handbag or sure you'll have some sort of fashion integration collaboration. But I feel like people tend to snub their noses at artists whenever it's like, you know, Joe Stevens, who's an artist who has a studio in Austin making t-shirts in addition to making paintings. It's like, why are we snubbing those, quote, quote, lower level artists who show with like a regional gallery for doing the same thing that internationally known artists do with luxury brands? Like at least that local or regional artist is selling their shirts for 30 bucks a pop instead of 2000, right? Like, Right. 
I mean, it's like, it's almost like they get accused of selling out or something. And it's like, no, I'm just trying to pay the bills, you know? And it's, Cruz Ortiz was doing this for years and years and years, and he was also criticized by it. Well, and that's just a very, very um, Texas example. He did the, the vodka bottle. He did the pizza boxes. He did all of these things. And many people in his community and around um, did criticize him for selling out. And it's like, he's got like four kids um, and a family to feed plus his own practice. Um, and it was just like, are we going to criticize him for being able to pay the bills? Cause isn't that something we all strive for paying the bills? Yeah, I, I totally agree. It's like, I feel like I used to actually be a little more cynical about this and be like, Oh, we're, we're going to do t-shirt. Or I, I think I used to be cynical while also completely loving the object itself because it was something I could afford. Right. Um, but I feel like I've kind of, I feel like I've come around on it where I'm like, you know, just anything that artists can do to get and make money and support themselves as artists, if it's selling I don't napkins with your photographs on them, I mean, you know, just because Takashi Murakami sells plush toys doesn't mean his paintings don't also go for hundreds of thousands of dollars. So why is, why is you selling napkins going to make someone not buy your $2,500 photograph. You know, like, I think there is a lot of room for that. I almost feel, I don't know if there's a good line of like, well, when is it, when is it good? And when is it gross? Like, I almost feel like it's a weird case by case basis. And it's like something I could think something's gross while I could still be like, yeah, go you, man, you sell that, uh, handkerchief and, make 50 bucks on it because people will pay and you'll be able to support yourself. I could do that while also not totally being behind it. You know, it's not mutually exclusive. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this so much of this reflects the art world, which is so subjective, right? Um, it's just a case by case basis. And you might not like that handkerchief, but I might love it and I might buy five. Um, yeah, it's, and, and I think a lot of this, I mean, I definitely, I definitely was reticent towards this stuff when I was younger and sort of a baby in the art world. And then you grow into the art world and it's like, I'm tired of being broke, Um, you know, and we have this very idyllic sense of what an art world should be and how to participate in it. But the reality of it is really different. And I am all for an artist if they can find a way to make money. Um, and I might not agree with it every time, but like at the end of the day, if that's what they're able to do to support and sustain themselves rather than live on exposure, which we all know doesn't work. Um, I, you know, it's do it, find a way to do it. It's kind of also the logical conclusion or the logical next step in the process of, well, okay, someone can't afford my $5,000 painting. So I make prints that are a thousand dollars or eight hundred dollars a piece well then it's like okay my artist friends can't afford an eight hundred dollar print so then i on red bubble or whatever i i produce some t-shirts for fifty dollars a piece that people can afford like it's it's just kind of the next step down the line and i feel like the reason why it's lambasted a little bit and one of the reasons that i initially was reticent to it was because it totally takes out well, grain of salt, it totally takes out the hand of the artist, right? Like in terms of the physical creation of the production, like a print on demand site, if an artist has their stuff up there, they don't touch it. It ships to your door. 
but at the same time, it is the artist's artwork or design or, you know, maybe it's not art. And I don't think all of that stuff needs to be art, but they can be the objects that they are while and, and fulfill the purpose of those objects. What I mean by that is I feel like a lot of times it's like the the reason for being skeptical about it or for not liking it is because you look at someone who prints their photographs on napkins and you're like, oh, that's not art. And it's like, are they try are they hanging it up in a gallery? Are they framing them? Are are they trying to make it art? In this case, it seems like they made napkins with their photographs on them. So they're meant to serve as napkins. Do they wipe up spills? Yes, they do. They're successful in what they are, you know? And that's okay. Well, and there's another example. Um, Francisco Moreno, uh, an artist based in Dallas, a painter in Dallas, when he I – th- I think this is a really interesting decision that he made. Um, he decided to get ahead of it, right? Um, so for years after he graduated, he sold $100 paintings, like like teeny tiny like four by eights or something for $100 each. They were, yeah, they were tiny, right? Oh, probably like – oh, it was something like three by four or – yeah, very small. It was so cool because, like, I can afford that, and I want a painting by him. Um, and and he actually, I think, conceptually just really took charge of this idea of what it is to be in debt and what it is to sell your work. And so he just, like, sold these $100 paintings to help him pay off his student loan debt. Um, and eventually he got more and more recognition in Dallas and was doing bigger projects and didn't need to sell them anymore. So now he's got the sort of backstock of them because they take more time and energy than they do to sell than they do to, to make or other way around to make than they do to sell. Um, but it was a really interesting way, I think, and this isn't necessarily about commercial objects like mass produced prints or napkins, but I think it was a really interesting way for him to get in front of this idea of debt and like really, um, get in front of the idea of of paying the bills and use his work to an advantage in which he could actually control it very early on. Well, and that's I've seen a few other artists uh, make smaller scale work like that, like work that's five by seven paintings. Part of this, I think, is my love for very small scale things. But I think one of the reasons I love small scale things is because they are accessible to people like people who work in the arts have wonderful collections of very small scale things. And the people who own those small scale things or the artists selling those small scale things, the collectors don't care that someone is selling a five by seven painting. You know, they're not going to choose to buy that five by seven painting. They want a 20 by 30 painting that'll look good on their wall. um, And that's a better investment, frankly, than a really small thing. Um, So it was nice because, I mean, Francisco's work wasn't necessarily cheap, but those were affordable. And I know a lot of times they were pretty sold out. Like I would do studio visits with him and he would just kind of talk about that. He didn't really have any left because his friends were buying them. Um, And that's, yeah, that's, that's an impressive thing. I mean, that's, it, it, it's a feat to be able to do something like that and maintain your quote, quote integrity, because those are, quote unquote, real artworks by him, right? They weren't prints on a t-shirt. They are artworks that were on panel that you hang on the wall of your house and they are real artworks done at an affordable price for a purpose. I think sometimes that purpose also 
goes a long way towards making something palatable like that. It's like he wasn't selling little $100 paintings just to sell $100 paintings and make a quick buck. He was selling $100 paintings as part of a conceptual project where all of the money from that project went down to pay went to pay down his graduate school debt. The project overall was called Painting Debt and that was the perp, right? So it's like that that project kind of had all of the components of yeah, this I can I can do this. This makes sense. I they're affordable, they're yeah. And I'm thinking Cruz Ortiz is the same thing. He's very much in control of his image. Um, I, I think for me, the line is, is that artist consenting or, you know, is that artist, is it in the hands of the artist? I think when it gets bigger than that, that's where it starts to get a little fuzzy for me. It's like, should we do this? Should we not do this? But I, at the end of the day, it's like if the artist can support themselves and maintain themselves um, in this art world of ours, which is also very tricky. Um, then I, yeah, it's I. I might not like it. I might not like the things that they're making necessarily. But I also don't have to because it's a big world and people will like it and buy it and help sustain this artist. Well, talking about having it in the hands of the artists, you go the complete opposite direction from like the Louis Vuitton collab, and you get things like, I guess both of them are kind of non-existent anymore. But you get things like Bill's junk by Bill Davenport in Houston, or you get the Infinito Botanica by Franco Montini Ruiz in San Antonio. Like you get artists who run stores, but the store has a conceptual bit. It's like they're literally selling products. The artwork is integrated as a product, but it's also an artwork. And the overall thing is an artwork also it's kind of like a social sculpture and it's like i feel like that's also that's also a really interesting area where people just kind of accept it in the art world right because it's kind of like this no matter how much of a store it actually is it's not like a boutique that's selling art objects it's an artist social sculpture project that is a larger thing that's also a store where you can buy art object it, it's kind of it fits that perfect like art world mold of like oh they're running a store but you know well i also think um, the museum of human achievement have, has played into this a few times with um their projects during east one year they may always have really creative east exhibitions and you know, the East Austin Studio Tour is this massive studio tour that happens in Austin once a year over two weekends. And you get a lot of people that are not at all related to the art world. And that's great. That's wonderful. People are getting out to see things and going into studios. Um, but what the Human Museum of Human Achievement has done um, is kind of they've f- found this way to do something really fun, um, somewhat practical, uh, that kind of reaches the palette of many, many people that don't necessarily participate in the art world. One of those years was they remade an Ikea with like all art objects inside of the space, which is just like a warehouse that is falling the fuck apart. And then another year, I remember this, they did, they divided the Museum of Human Achievement into different colored sections. So you had an orange section, a green section, a red section, whatever. And you had to play this game where you spun like a wheel, you got a color and you could pick anything from whatever section you got in that color. Um, and then you, they waited at the end. So it was like a dollar a pound or something like that, I remember. Um, but you had work in there by like pretty, you know, respected artists, Sterling Allen, Mark Menjivar. Um, I got 
an enormous painting by someone in Houston. But wasn't wasn't it also uh, where you didn't know or quote, quote, you didn't know who the artist was. Like if you were kind of in the scene, you could pick up on it or you knew your friend had a piece in the orange section or whatever. But you also like it wasn't labeled like, oh, this is a painting by this artist. Like you just kind of had to pick what you liked. Yeah, it was exactly that. I have like this little orange rock by Sterling Allen that has like a green thing on top. And I have like a green vase with like a plastic thing that's like from Mark Menjivar. But yeah, I didn't. I had no idea what these objects were until after I purchased them. Um, I, I have a painting by, uh, that's on a shop blanket by someone from Houston, and I cannot remember his name. Um, which is to say, like, it's an interesting exercise in, like, buying what you like formally, which is what we do when we participate in capitalism, right? Um, and so it just, it was a, it's a, it's an interesting way to flip the model again in terms of, like, what is buying something? What is commercializing something? Um, how can you play with these models? Um, and what are the values behind them? Well, and on that note, um, not to screech to a halt, but... You know, we, we could sit here and talk about this for the next uh, hour and a half, um, but we're not going to, for your sake, listener. Um, so with that, we're going to wrap up. Uh, thank you for listening. Uh, if you haven't seen the Kusama animatronic or the Kusama big inflatable, I think it's inflatable, uh, figure creeping around the Paris building. We'll throw some links in the comments of this post on Glass Tire and you should check it out because if anything it's a cultural zeitgeist thing that you can say you were a part of. Um, If you have any thoughts on uh, artists selling their work or on commercialism, feel free to drop them in the comments. I'm sure that'll be be fun. Um, And with that, thanks Leslie for joining us this week. Thanks Brandon. And, uh, listener, there's a whole lot going on in Texas's art scene right now. So we recommend you take an art, take a look at our event listings and go see some art. Go see some art. This podcast was recorded by Glass Tire and edited by William Saradet. Copyright Glass Tire 2023.